Welcome, adventurers. Can Mela and her friends find an invisible messenger? And will it lead them to what they seek? Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon After months of pretending, waiting, watching, and listening, things were finally moving, and moving rapidly. Though they didn't have any indisputable proof yet, the way forward and what it led to seemed more and more certain. Hoping to be able to bide their time a while longer while they attempted to investigate and track the origin of the invisible messenger, they kept to the routine. But in the end, the choice was taken out of their hands. A letter and a parcel had arrived from Lord Sinvarista's estate. Not a request for an update, nor congratulations for work well done, or admonishment for the lack of results. It was a request for Skeldi Husvarn to attend the Lord for dinner. The package contained a dress for Mela. The messenger had insisted at Everdine's command that the message be given into Skeldi's hands in person, and no others. Sarkeesian, who had answered the door, had tried for three bars to talk the flustered attendant into turning the message over to her only relenting when she got the impression that if the messenger failed in his assigned task, he might lose his job, or worse. Escorting him within, Sarkeesian had stood in attendance, as Mela read. To the enchanting and alluring Skeldi Husvarn, does the magnanimous and elevated lord Evredine Sinvar Ista seek your attendance upon him to share in his evening meal? The dress provided is made by the incomparable Porata Falespa, for you and you alone. In thanks for his generosity, the Lord wishes nothing more than to see you in this magnificent gift. The attendant before you will bring your answer directly to the Lord's ears. He awaits your acquiescence and appearance with great anticipation. Signed, Ekmetrevin Orlot. Second secretary to the most noble Lord Evredine Sinvarista, first of his name. Mela had looked up from the letter in a stupor. Sarkeesian was staring at her, but so was the messenger. The fear in the messenger's eyes confirmed the barely hidden tone of the writings. This was a summons, not an invitation. Not trusting her voice to betray her disgust and fear, she had simply nodded. The relief in the messenger's face was clear. He conveyed that a carriage would arrive for her a bell after soulset. As soon as he was gone, Sarkeesian had grabbed up the letter and read it. Absolutely not, she had said. The impressive woman had stomped out of the room to find Colfin. Colfin had to be sent to retrieve Colborn, who was in the city somewhere doing research. By the time the brothers had returned, Sol was setting. Sarkeesian's normal calm was strained. She wasn't sure how they would abandon the city on such short notice. 
Their rapid disappearance would draw renewed attentions on their activities and probably have them dodging more agents and assassins for months to come. Sarkeesian had cursed. Cursed more than Mela had ever heard before. Colborn, now returned, was staring out the window, turning every now and again to spit out an unlikely excuse for their rapid departure. Colfin was elsewhere, packing the absolute minimum supplies necessary to make an escape, and plotting options for which route of flight would draw the least attention. Amid the chaos, Mela watched her friends, her family, in their panicked preparations. They had taught her much, that she was valuable, worthy of love, taught her to be confident in her abilities. What if I go? She said out loud. Sarkeesian stopped pacing, turning on her as if she was an enemy. Colborn stood and frowned. Mela lifted her chin. If I go, we don't have to lift the veil of our cover. If I go, we can leave the city to go on our expedition soon. She looked to Colborn. His frown remained firmly on his face. You would be in there alone, my dear, Sarkeesian started, and I know you are not so naive as to presume the Lord Everdyne will stick to his manners and cordiality if it doesn't suit his desires. Mela turned to look at Sarkeesian. And I hope you know I have learned to be strong, taught to be strong by an amazing woman and her friends. She let those words hang. Sarkeesian's disapproval turned into cautious consideration. Mela started again. And I hope you know that I will let no one's desires overtake my will. A sword appeared in her hand. A smile rolled briefly over Sarkeesian's face. The tall woman looked to Colborn. Though still frowning, he crossed the distance to their leader and whispered into her ear, before looking back to Mela. Sarkeesian nodded after a moment. Colborn walked now to Mela, his hand going into a pouch, pulling out a smooth set of stones. A few dwarven glyphs were carved into their face. He dropped one into her hand. You need us, and you just speak into this stone. He held up the other. We will hear and come and get you. And then partly trailing off under his breath. If I have to burn down the entire Lord's manor and the doing. Colborn's brown eyes were stern, full of fatherly concern. Mela looked at both of them. It will be for the best. This way we have a chance of keeping up our ruse a while longer, until we can come up with a better plan. Mela had donned the dress. She had rode in the carriage. They had all hoped for the best, but Everdyne's nature was vile and true. Dinner had passed with little of note, more stories of Everdyne's prowess, wit, and influence. She did her best to look interested. As dinner drew to an end, a sense of relief built in Mela. It seemed the worry had been unfounded, until he asked her to take a walk with him that he might show her his private art collection. She had tried to take her leave. I slept poorly last night. Perhaps we could see it another day. 
Nonsense, he had replied. It will be very enjoyable, and if you are tired when it is over, you may sleep here. Her face flushed, stomach sank, relief fled. But she thought of her companions. Rianok would find some clever way out. Sarkeesian would stand tall. Ketri would crush this pretty man, break his arms and legs. Strength welled up inside her, and to her dismay she found herself smiling. Everdyne saw this, and like all things, assumed it was for him. And it was, in a way. They strolled in a large gallery. He stood too close, kept touching her arm and back. The walk continued to his sleeping chambers, where both guards and attendants were dismissed, with instructions that under no uncertain terms were they to be disturbed until morning. Everdyne closed the massive double doors to his room and turned to look upon her. No magic was necessary to guess at his thoughts. He gave a lecherous smile and began to approach. His smile touched Mela's lips as well, but not her eyes. It got physical, but not in the way Lord Sinvarista had intended. Beaten, unconscious, gagged and bound, his limp body was rolled underneath his massive bed with some effort. It was during this process that she saw it, just below the base of his neck, between his shoulder blades, in a place that would be hidden by his high collars or long hair, a tattoo, a tattoo of a green bug, the mark of the emerald scarab. Mela messed up the covers on the bed, found a piece of fancy parchment in a quill and scribbled a quick note, tossing it under the bed with him. Thanks for the wonderful evening. If you come for me or my friends, you won't live to read the next one. Skeldy. Next, she took the stone Colborn had given her and spoke quietly into it. I am safe, but we are going to need to leave tonight. Please pack my things. Mela shut the door and walked confidently from the room. Two chambers away, she encountered a household guard. They looked her up and down, disheveled hair, dress torn, lip split. Mela winked. The Lord is quite worn out. He sent me away, but told me to tell the first servant I saw that anyone who wakes him before luncheon on the morrow will be very sorry. She couldn't believe it had worked, but strolled from the estate and into the night with no further incident. A silent shadow passed over her as she walked toward the front gate. Mela turned her eyes skyward for a moment, catching a glimpse of an owl circling. Looking back to the path ahead, Mela shook her head, wondering how close the manner of Lord Sinvarista had come to being burnt to the ground. Despite the late hour, she was offered a ride home. It was quite cold, but she said she preferred to take in the night air. A block away, she began to regret the choice, as her teeth began to chatter. 
The ridiculous frock she wore was no kind of thing for the outdoors at night. She was lamenting the long walk ahead when a short, cloaked figure stepped out of the shadows. Hela's hackles went up as the figure matched her pace. She was considering the sword when the figure spoke. Lystris. True relief came then. Mela spun to Rianok, wrapping her in a hug. Rianok stiffened at first, and then relaxed, putting a small hand to the back of her head. After a few beats, We should probably go. A ruffled-up lady hugging a suspicious-looking half-leg in the streets might draw attention. Mela had a hard time letting go. But when she did, Rianok smiled. The others are not far. It really shouldn't have surprised her. Sarkeesian always made backup plans for her backup plans. Her companions were not all the way back at the residence, but waiting for her three blocks from the front gate of the Sinvarista estate. Colfin was driving a rickety wagon. Ketri sat beside him. Sarkeesian placed a hand on her shoulder when they arrived. Mela recounted the evening's events the tattoo in particular, as the cart rattled into motion. Two streets later, the owl landed in the cart bed and shimmered into Colborn's form. The wizard used an illusion at the main gate to turn the wagon into a regal carriage bearing the seal of one Lord Patron Waswana. They had entered the city under false names and left covered in false images. Staking out the location where the invisible messenger had been observed, it only took two days before they found the trail. The messenger had taken something from the pouch this time. Colborn used a casting, allowing him to see through the cover of invisibility, nodding to his brother in confirmation. They were cautious and tracked the messenger at a distance. A full day south and then a second. On a third day, they entered a region known as the Titan's Boneyard, an area where many rock spires stood amongst the dry grass. Rumors and legends said these rocks were the long-worn headstones of an ancient people that walked the lands long before even the elves. It was a barren place, and very few lived or even traveled within miles of the ponderous rocks. However, the tracks of their quarry led unerringly in. In the middle of the third day, the tracks had abruptly ended, as if the messenger had been snatched up and carried off into the sky. It was a massive blow to morale. Yet Sarkeesian was unconvinced all was lost. They made their way a short distance from the spot and set up a camouflaged blind of sorts to hide behind and observe the area from. Their eyes were turned to the sky by and large, so it was a shock to find it was below they should have looked. A hole had opened in the ground the following day, and their messenger friend had emerged. They were tracked again, stalked this time, and captured. The messenger was used to gain re-entry into the secret hideout below. What could have been quite deadly had turned out to be quite simple as they used surprise and deception to their advantage at every turn. The den below was difficult to believe. It housed nine changelings. 
beings that were thought to be just folktales, but folktales no longer. They possessed the ability to change shape, to mimic the forms of those they had laid eyes on. Sarkeesian hoped for a brief time that they had found the source of the emerald scarab herself, but it wasn't so. Instead, Ketri, covered in greenish blood and bluish viscera, had managed to impart upon the head changeling the immediate danger of losing their life that stood before them. It was there that they learned of the Grey House, a residence just outside of Solvara proper, the home of Anganor. None of the surviving three would acknowledge the existence of the Emerald Scarab, no matter what agony Ketri threatened. It was worrisome to think that the Emerald Scarab garnered more fear at a distance than Ketri did in person. The den was searched, and any item that could be used for communication was removed or destroyed. Colborn was successful at using magic to compel the survivors to make their way east to the root tower at the Knoll's Reef and turn themselves in. He wasn't sure the spell's effect would last long enough, but he was sure it would buy them some time. A day, at least. From there, the party had gone immediately north. North to the Grey House. Their footsteps echoed in the Hall of Blackstone. Sarkeesian had taken the lead. As they reached the first set of torches, they found it was a four-way intersection, with identical black reflective halls extending off to their right and left. The illusion of being swallowed in black, dotted with green flame, was near complete. Mela looked back to where they had started and was disheartened to find she could barely see the door through which they had entered. Eyes forward. Sarkeesian's voice came from ahead. Mela turned and started to walk. Passing the intersection, she heard, she thought she heard, a whisper calling to her. A voice from, from before the orphanage. The smell of trees, and then shouts and burning. Before Mela had even realized what she was doing, she stepped into the side corridor. It couldn't have been more than a few steps. She stopped. Wandering off seemed like a bad idea. Turning back, her heart leapt. The party was gone, only black and sputtering green. Mela spun about, panic welling up inside. Her words sounded as if they moved through water, muddled, imperfect. She took a step in the direction she thought she had come from, and then another. No intersection. No party. She stepped back twice. Something grasped her cloak. Sword flashing into her hand, she was yanked back. Losing her footing, she fell and lost all reference. Up, down, Forward, back, she could no longer tell. As her bottom struck the cold stone, she twisted into a spin, swinging her sword out in the direction the tug had come from. Only then, hearing the cry, Mila! It was Rianuk. What in Resilid are you doing? She sat at the intersection again, 
The party bunched around, staring in concern at her. Ayanok explained how she had turned away for a moment, and when she looked back, there wasn't one but twelve or more Melas walking away down the side corridor, each one facing a different direction. She had grasped at three reflections before catching a hold of the real Mela. Sarkeesian gave a disapproving frown, but said nothing. Colfin produced a rope, and they tied themselves together at the waist. The time after that was hard to track. After two chosen turns, it was impossible to tell where they were, the door through which they had come having been the only point of difference, and that was no longer in sight. Colborn kept keen track of the turns they had made. But after five, and seeing no change, they tried to go back. But there was no door. Mela heard, and then turned to see Rianak beginning to hyperventilate, eyes wide, pupils small. Mela reached out and took her hand. The halfling flinched, but then looked at her. Their eyes met. Mela began to breathe slowly, with intent. Rianok's breath began to match hers, began to calm. Colborn started a ritual to detect magic. When done, he seemed irritated. It's all magic, he said, waving his hand around generically. I might be able to dispel a section, but not knowing how far we've come, I'm not sure what good it will do. On your guard, then, Sarkeesian said. We are smart. Let's figure this out. They began by leaving a copper in the center of the intersection and then taking four right turns. There was no copper when they returned to what should have been the beginning. They placed a silver piece and then turned four times to the left. No coin. They began trying different combinations. They found the copper again, or thought they did. But from that point on, there was a copper or at least the illusion of one, at every intersection thereafter. Their exploration was brought to an abrupt halt when Sarkeesian stumbled and then fell into an open pit just past one turn. Colborn, who was next in line, was pulled in as well by the rope at their waists. Colfin, next in line, somehow managed a magnificent feat of strength, setting his feet and leaning back as he was yanked forward toward the ledge. All had stopped, breaths heavy as their companions dangled below. The remaining four, working together, were able to pull the wizard and the cleric out. They untied themselves and sat in the last intersection. Rianok did not panic this time, but Mela reached out and took the halfling's hand. Maybe she needed the comfort. Rianok allowed it to happen. Colborn paced hand on his beard. Colfin passed out some food. There was nothing but the sound of quiet chewing and Colborn's pacing. Mela was trying not to think too much about their situation, focusing instead on her breathing. At some point, she heard Colborn's pacing slow, and then stop. It picked up again for a few steps, and then stopped. Mela looked up at the wizard. He was staring at the wall, he moved again, back and forth, eyes fixed on what seemed like the same spot. 
adjusting himself a few times, he began to move slowly toward whatever he was looking at. When he stood just before the wall, he reached out his hand, which passed through unimpeded. He let out a cry of joy and then clapped. Come, friends, I think I found the way. He explained his discovery, showing them each in turn. When walking down the black halls, the reflections of the green flames appeared to move all around, shifting in reference to where you stood or where you looked. Colborne helped push them into a spot, getting their vision at just the right line. The green flames all lined up, forming four lines that all pointed to a single vanishing point in the distance. The ropes were retied, and they started toward the vanishing point. Disorienting was an understatement. They moved forward, through the wall, into a ceiling, up through a floor. Copper pieces appeared, silver pieces. They even passed directly through a pit, feet appearing to walk on nothing. But Sarkeesian led them on toward the vanishing point, where at last they came upon a door, the door from which they had begun. Colborne quickly turned about, seeing if the green flame hallway ran the other direction. He could not find it. Reluctantly, they decided to go through and regroup. There was a tired defeat in the Sarkeesian's voice as she said this. The door was pulled open, and their eyes fell to the way ahead. Not a cave, but a well-appointed chamber. The walls were lined with bookshelves. The floor was of the same polished black stone. Inlaid in the floor in silver and emerald dust was a large depiction, one they had seen before. The mark of the emerald scarab. And as unexpected as all of that was, even more was the person sitting at the large black desk across the way. It was Sarkeesian or at least it was someone who looked exactly the same as Sarkeesian. That one stood hands down on the desktop. Well, aren't you just also resourceful? And then, standing to her full height, it will be a joy to present your bodies to the master. And with that, she began to chant, fingers forming the opening positions of a casting it seemed six against one should have ended quickly. But Enganar, for that is whom they had found at long last, was a powerful wizard and a deceitful opponent. The battle that ensued was intense. Both Colfin and Mela had to be saved from unconscious states via magic. But they did prevail. As they stood over Enganar's dying form his body having reverted into a hairless humanoid with blue-gray skin, golden-yellow eyes staring to the roof above. Sarkeesian talked to him in a calm, cold tone. Your master's influence is coming to an end. It is only a matter of time. We will find her, find the emerald scarab, and her end will be much the same as yours. A gurgling noise emanated from Inganar. Mela had thought it was the life leaving the being at first, 
and a chill went down her spine as she realized it was laughter. My master's influence has endured for centuries. Time means nothing to her. Your aspirations are that of gnats who strive to control the wind. You will be swept away. It is your death that you run toward. Enganor spasmed, coughing up green blood. His eyes lost focus and words rattled out of him in his final breaths. She has embraced death and defeated him. The emerald scarab stand alone above all others. Immortal, undying. There can be no more doubt. The way forward will lead to an inevitable clash with the emerald scarab. But what chance do mortal beings stand when faced with an enemy that has defeated death itself? Here ends Season 5. good listeners uh, at a very long last season five has come to an end uh, I said last week I would let you know uh, we are going to have a few wrap-up episodes they may not be the exact same format or maybe they will not quite sure it's just that this season was so long that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to address every episode the same in a rules context so it may be some sort of abbreviated recap uh, or just the highlights of rules that fit into uh, this season. That being said, thank you so much for listening along on this tale, uh, this journey that you are taking with me. Uh, I am discovering the process of writing and telling stories as this moves on. And so when some of these stories are getting longer and longer, it's just this process of discovery that I'm still going on as an amateur writer uh, and uh, aspiring storyteller. So above all, thank you for sticking with me. And uh, I will be back next week with some sort of season rules recap. And uh, that's that. So all of the best to you from the very bottom of my heart. I really and truly Hope and wish good things on all of you.